On today's episode, I'm joined by Marketing Director Neil Davies, and we have on the show the crew from Wild Boar Fever. Now, Wild Boar Fever is getting ready to launch their 12th season on September 3rd on the Outdoor Channel. On the show, we discuss some of the differences between the U.S. hunting that we're familiar with and the traditional European-driven hunts that are featured on the show Wild Boar Fever. We discuss conservation. We discuss why driven hunts really work well for the conservation efforts over in Europe. And we end the conversation, as always, asking our new guests what cartridge and bullet they would choose if they had to. This was a fun episode. We think you'll enjoy it. I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Seth Swerzik on the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. And today I am joined by our marketing director, Neil Davies. Neil, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Seth. Absolutely. So we've got a, a, a pretty unique episode in that it's kind of a, most people consume our podcast on YouTube. Mm. And so it's like they're watching a TV show. Well, this is kind of a TV show about a TV show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, about a big conservation effort, I suppose. Uh, so uh, join me in welcoming on a, a digital recording uh, via the interwebs. We have Simon Barr with Tweed Media, and we've got Calais and Franz on the show. Thanks for coming on, guys. Happy to be here. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you very much. So the topic that we're talking today is wild boar fever. And for those listening domestically uh, here in the U.S., wild boar fever on the Outdoor Channel, we've got to be going on north of 10 seasons of this show i, I would this estimate was, this was 12 so this was wild boar fever uh season 12 and uh france albrecht who's who's obviously joined us here today a lot of people in the states before the shows used to air on on the outdoor channel would have would have seen some of the clips and things like that on youtube and okay. i think they were often referred to as the 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 aim point hunts right that's that's what a lot of people knew them at it's over here in the States anyways, internationally, everybody watched it because wild boar fever is a phenomenon. So all over Europe, the wild boar is literally the, you know, it's, it's the most sought after game. It's right. a very passionate um, endeavor for so many people. And uh, France has kind of led the charge uh, by popularizing the driven hunts, particularly here in the United States. Okay. So he kind of helped put it on the map for us. And then with us today, Calais is, uh, is a member of the staff over at Aimpoint as well. Awesome. And Aimpoint, you know, we talk about wild boar fever, it's kind of synonymous. Aimpoint has been with the show using uh, their products on the show for all of these seasons recorded. Let's talk a little bit about that partnership. What does Aimpoint bring to the table that makes them uh, so usable and and what makes their products uh, kind of the pinnacle for those driven hunts? <laughs> I was just waiting for the cue. So basically, I think, you know, uh, the whole company started with a Swedish guy called Gunnar Sandberg, who uh, was a very keen hunter. And he was then approached by an engineer who was also a very keen sports shooter. And they came up with, uh, with a red dot sight. So um, before Aimpoint was invented in 75, there wasn't anything like it. Um, and he then, for let's say more or less 25 years, pushed this product into the hunting market. He was maybe a bit before the time, people were not really ready. And uh, in company terms, it first really took off when then some U.S. Uh, soldiers took the hunting version 
uh, that they were using privately and put it on their uh, military guns. And that's when, when the company really started growing. But simultaneously, I mean, uh, it was invented for hunting. It was invented for shooting um, fast at, at moving targets. And that's uh, what it's still very, very good at um, because you have no magnification. So what you see is what you get, which gives you a very broad overview. It gives you a very good situation awareness. Um, and I mean, because then from the late uh, 90s, we were only we were developing everything for the for the military. The quality has just been one off and, and um, it still is the same quality. So the hunter really gets um, a, a very, very durable product that will work always and he can always rely on it. And then um, they partnered up um, 25 years ago with uh, back then Hunter's video um, and through this cooperation, there's so many uh, driven bow hunters all over uh, Europe and the world uh, have kind of made the connection that they would always say any red dot is, is an aim point. Mm -hmm. uh, That's kind of come synonymous with, uh, with driven hunting. And Franz, from your standpoint, uh, as the shooter and as the, the, you know, the, the guy behind the rifle, what makes that aim point such a natural thing for you on moving or excuse me, hitting uh, moving targets, which in the U.S. we don't typically do, but I know it's you have to do it over there. Those a lot of driven hunts, you're going to shoot moving game, and how does that uh, red dot optic work for you? Yeah, I mean, if I look back on nearly 15 years of using aimpoints, especially on the wild wolf fever shoots, one thing I have to underline: I've never ever had an issue with an aimpoint. I mean, it's never broken down on me. Uh, it's never. I've never lost the the red dot, which is battery driven, but it has, I think, 50,000 hours of battery life or something uh, crazy. Um, and I've always been able to rely on it. And it's just very easy plug and play sort of sort of thing. You mount it on your rifle. It's easy to sight in. And and it couldn't be more easy to use because all you do is you put the you know, you put the red dot on on your target. And once you pull the trigger, the bullet goes exactly where the red dot was. So. Uh, it's an easy, it's an easy way if you're a beginner uh, to to start on on moving targets and as much of um, as much experience as you've had, it it will always be a tool that will help you tremendously on 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 driven driven days. But it could also be, I mean, a lot of people in Germany nowadays use nowadays uh, use it uh, as dog handlers. You know, when you're walking through the drive and you have a a wounded, uh, a wounded animal or something like that, you can easily dispatch it at any distance. I mean, it's very good at extremely close distances. It's also good at longer distances. And uh, a lot of people who are sort of doing the tracking jobs after the drive, when if there is a wounded, a wounded animal and they've got their bloodhounds on it, a lot of, a lot of those guys have mounted aim points nowadays. And whereas they used to be, uh, probably more used to using open sights, but when you have open sights, you have to kind of align three things. You align the bead, you align the, the, the foresight, and then you have to align the target. With the aim point, all you do is you just use the red dot and the target. So you kind of eliminate one possibility of error. And yeah, I mean, it's easy to explain to anyone um, and it's easy to use from without having any sort of big instruction. Awesome. Well, uh, one thing that I brought up earlier that I want to talk more in depth about is kind of the cultural significance of driven hunts. You know, here 
uh, in the U.S., there are deer drives, uh, you know, in the yeah. traditional kind of upper Midwest, it's a very common thing. But outside of that, we don't really have the opportunity or the, the game or the locations to do some of these driven hunts that you'll see in Europe. And the TV show, The Wild Boar Fever, really brought that new type of experience to a whole audience of people who would uh, previously really never be exposed to it. But uh, it's pretty much all throughout the European continent that driven hunts are incredibly popular. Yeah, France, maybe you could give us kind of a, a quick synopsis or, or history of driven hunting and what it's used for and how it's, uh, how it's executed, perhaps. That might be good for everybody listening. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great tool for population control. And of course, Wild Bull Fever has been uh, a popular series showing how we control our, our wild boar populations. But it's also used on a lot of other species. I mean, uh, we also shoot roe deer, red deer, fallow deer, mouflon, and all other types of species that we have uh, here on the European continent on these driven days. And the idea of driven shooting basically just came about because if you are trying to control the population or the, 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 the yearly offtake of your herd that you need to do, especially on the female side, uh, and smaller trophy size. Um, if you want to do that one by one, firstly, it's going to take a lot more time. And secondly, you are going to stress the herd by continuously applying hunting pressure. And for us, especially on the wild boar, it has become clear that the best way to control the population is to have one or two driven days a year over the same piece of land where you know the animals are consistently around. And within those one or two days, you manage to do the, the offtake, the yearly offtake, so the population doesn't grow into, uh, into an amount that is then difficult to align with your forestry or agriculture. There's too much damages to the crop or there's too much damages to the trees in terms of the roe deer and the fallow deer and the red deer. So applying less hunting pressure and more effectively taking off high numbers in a controlled and well-managed way in fewer days gives the, gives the game a stress-free life for the rest of the year, uh, meaning that they are easier to see during the day. They go out to feed in their normal rhythm. They, they use the crop that you put out for them in um, the food crop um, on a daily basis. Um, roe deer, for example, have to eat every two hours. Red deer eat every four hours. Wild boar like to move at night, but they have to have their natural feeding patterns in place for them to, to sort of lead a stress-free, healthy life. And if you constantly apply hunting pressure to keep the numbers down and you're basically out there 365 days a year, um, they won't be able to move as they usually do and actually crop damage and damages to the trees will increase. So these days have a high management and conservational background on why we do them. It's just not for, it's not, it's not, it's not just for fun that we do it. It actually has a reason why we do it. And it's still the most effective way of con population control. Drive is on as the marksmen of wild boar fever head to Spain, taking the driven hunt to a breathtaking new level. 
so exciting, it's difficult to grasp everything at the same time. But it's like action nonstop. Wild Boar Feeders Spain, presented by Aimpoint, hunts the globe. Premier September 5th on My Outdoor TV. Yeah, and France, maybe, you know, talking about the, the sexing and the aging of the, of the boars and the other animals really quickly, that's something important for people to know. Now, it, as, as an American going over there, when we don't do this all the time, it's very difficult. But France and Calais, you know, they do these things fairly often. And maybe you can touch on that, France, if you have a second. Yeah, I mean, and every shoot will have different rules of the day, depending on what type of management they would want to do on that particular day. So maybe even though they have four of the species on the estate, maybe they have already, uh, they you know, they want to increase the numbers of one of the species and they want to decrease the numbers heavily on one of the other species. And then on another species, they may only want to take off a few. So every day has, has different rules and regulations. Uh, usually we don't shoot mother uh, animals that are uh, still in charge of their young. So uh, a big female sow wouldn't be able to be shot unless you have, you have shot the, the youngsters that are following her because we have quite strong winters here in Europe, um, especially in sort of the Swedish, Swedish, Norwegian, northern parts, but also in Germany, Hungary, and so on. And we want the animals to sort of, um, yeah, on, on animal rights basis, have, have the best possible, um, have the best possible um, survival rate. Um, however, you would, you would probably have completely different rules in Spain than you would have in Germany. And in Germany, for example, you would probably only be shooting Frischling, which are the smallest ones, Überläufer, which are sort of the medium size. And once it gets to the big ones, you're probably only going to be able to shoot the males, not the females. But that's all down to the management strategy of that particular area you're hunting in. And it can, it can change from country to country, but even from region to region within a country. So you ha as a hunter, being part of one of, these, one of these shoots, you have to be quite avid in being able to distinguish age and sex in the different species that you're hunting. Very quickly. Yes, that's, very quickly. That's the trick. Yeah, and it sounds very strategic. You know, uh, when I first learned about European-style driven hunts, uh, in my mind, you know, it was kind of just, oh, you just shoot every animal that comes by, but it is... Couldn't that couldn't be further from the truth? It is a very strategic and very calculated endeavor, so that the the animal population on the property is commensurate with the sustainability of the property. Yeah, and that's so really a, a really a, a really good balance. And I will say, anecdotally, I've only taken part in one driven hunt, and leading up to it, it's like, man, I I didn't know how how fun it would be. Because, okay, I can only shoot the, this animal of this age and of this, this gender. And I had all these numbers going through my head, but then I get up in the high seat. I haven't had that much fun on a hunt in a long time. It oh, was, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of energy in the, in, involved in them because, you know, you, they, they put you in your stand. There's not much going on. Um, then the trucks will drive around, drop off all the beaters and they've got dogs. Then you hear the dogs start barking and then they're coming through and the beaters are, you know, kind of yelling, try to get the pigs moving and talking to the dogs the whole time. And just, boy, you just feel, you know, this, this uh, anticipation for what's to come. And it can be a pretty magical experience. And, and in a lot of, t lot of times you might sit on that stand and maybe for the drive, 
you don't see much or what you do see is is animals that are of the wrong gender mm -hmm. or age and you can't shoot them so it's not as if every single drive you know you might not you might not get every get an animal each right. drive yeah you know? but it was exciting for me to to hear the dogs and to hear the the dogs getting louder and yep. to hear you can hear things running through the trees but you can't distinguish where it's at or how big it is and there was just so much anticipation for the four hour block of each hunt that that i was on uh that by the end of it it was like man i need a nap i was because i was <laughs> just, dialed all in your adrenaline is dumped yeah, yeah it's so it's sure. a very unique way of hunting uh again for plainsmen like us out here in the u.s uh to experience that and i think the tv show wild boar fever uh does a good job of of balancing talking about the conservation and how important that is and you know it's not just important it's it's an obligation for the hunters of the area um, because mother nature will take care of overpopulation in its own way and it's usually not near as pretty or as humane as hunters doing it effectively no not at all and they get disease there's all sorts of things that can right happen. exactly and i think the show balances out talking about the conversation conservation and focusing on that but then also really highlighting how fun a hunt like that can be yeah and it's a very it's it's a it's a very enjoyable social event um with a with a purpose in mind obviously neil, absolutely uh, simon you were saying yeah just just to jump in here neil just from an american point of view because you've come and participated and uh you've experienced the high level of skill that you need so beyond the sort of wildlife management side and the conservation side there's a big fun side to this and I think um, shooting a running animal, and I don't know how fast they go when they go. Franz, you'll probably know the, how many miles per hour or kilometers per hour boar runs at full speed. But Neil, what's it like from your point of view when you, you shoot one of these with a single shot on the run and you need to be accurate with it? What's the thrill of that like? Yeah, when you, when you do it right, it's, ex it's an exhilarating feeling, obviously. And you do have an obligation to try to dispatch that animal as quickly and cleanly as you can. Because the way it works in a lot of these is maybe, you know, you, you need them to drop within sight. Because if you, if you drop more than one, maybe two that, that fall out of sight, well, the beaters have to come through. They have to find anything that might be wounded and whatnot. So obviously you have an obligation to the animal to try to kill them cleanly and dispatch them right away. But also it limits your capability to continue for that particular drive if you lose one or two out of sight. So you might be shooting across a... Oh, like a, like a burn or something like that, or even a, a, a trail that comes through the, the property. Well, you need to try to drop them so that you can see them drop cleanly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're, you're out of the game. So now, doing that every single time is not easy. France, Calais, you know, France is a master at this thing. Yeah, he's I mean, a pro. A lot of people have seen what he can do, and uh, France sets the standard. So uh, if I could be half as good as him, I'd, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah. But it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's a bit like shooting a shotgun, um, but you have to have a lead. You need to keep the bore nice and straight as you're, as you're moving through the animal. Uh, France has given me a few lessons, and I learned, uh, I learned some stuff, but it seems to be perishable every single time we go out. So. Yeah, it usually is. Yeah. I think it's, it's a unique experience uh, that kind of blends multiple shooting sports together. Like you mentioned, shotgun, you know, you look at like uh, skeet shooting, you know, you get on that number four stand shooting skeet and the clay's going across laterally in a darn hurry and you have to get the right lead. Uh, but you have to be precise. And I think as a shooter, you put a lot of stress on yourself. You put a lot of pressure on yourself to perform. And at least in my minimal experience, when you do something, you got a running animal, 
and you make that one shot clean kill and you see it go down, it almost happens in retrospect instinctively where your, your body moves, puts the right lead, judges the speed and the angle, and you make a good shot. And because of the pressure you've put on yourself, that means the feelings of uh, almost reward on a job well done is that much more intense, at least for me. And, you know, I was there for the for this filming, so I, I got to see or at least hear a lot of what was going on on some of the stands around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that this is going to be a pretty action-packed uh, several episodes because it's, yeah. it's a bit of a short series. But there was, you know, France and Calais were on some amazing stands. And I think you're going to get to see some tremendous shooting that took place during this thing. A lot of action. Yeah, for sure. I do have a question for uh, Franz and Calais that have done, you know, you, you live in the area where these hunts, you know, they occur uh, more often. You've gotten to take part in a bunch of them. From a bullet standpoint, the bullet has to be accurate and it has to perform. Do you guys have some favorite Hornady bullets that you prefer to use uh, for this style of hunting? I think for me, the, the go to. The go-to uh, projectile that I've used from Hornady uh, on driven shoots has been the SST. I have just... The most important thing um, during a driven shoot for me is it needs to be accurate for sure, it needs to be fast, and it needs to dispatch the animal as quickly as possible. So uh, SST has been the one that I've been... Uh, has been my go-to, my go-to uh, projectile for, for the driven shoots for sure. Awesome. Um, and Kale, how about so you? So actually, for the last, I don't know how long it's been out, but for the last, I would say, maybe 10 years, I've always shot the GMX. And that's been for everything. So that was actually, I had it in the 306, oh, sure. and I put it in my rifle always. didn't matter if it was for moose hunting up in Norway, which I've done now for the last 15 years, every year, for three or four weekends, or if it's on the Robux, or if it's on the Driven Hunts. Um, and uh, I I think that's really worked well. There, um, there's even been enough stopping power. I mean, I think because it's such a fast bullet and it's a lead three one, there has been a lot of talks between me and my friends and the guys who are still shooting lead, which we won't be able to for very much longer, um, that ah, but we would stick to the lead because it's too fast and it's expanding too fast before it even reached the vitals. If you shoot, like, let's say, on massive bores that have this big, like, um, Panzer Plus, they have been in, in a lot of mud, so... You would have to say before it hits anything uh, lethal, it could be as much as I don't know, like three or four, five, six, seven centimeters of non-vitals that it has to go through. And um, even on like really, really big uh, uh, male bulls in in um, Romania that had the, like a big panzer plus, they had all this mud. It, it still worked well. Um, but then when we were filming in Spain, I uh, got to use the SST, which I have shot occasionally when i've been borrowing guns from other people um and i must say as Franz says this is uh, i think now i mean it doesn't really make sense for me to switch now because we won't be able to shoot that bullet for very much longer unfortunately in europe um but that would then be also my choice for the driven hunts because as i now experienced in spain i mean there was not a lot of balls who didn't drop immediately uh, and as you mentioned before neil uh, it's the whole thing of we want to dispatch them as ethically and fast as possible. Uh, and if you see a drop, you know you did a good job. The Hornady CX Copper Alloy Expanding Bullet. CX bullets feature the advanced heat shield tip that resists aerodynamic heating and provides a consistently high BC. 
Hard-hitting and deep-penetrating, CX bullets are constructed of rugged monolithic copper alloy that retains 95% or more of their original weight for devastating terminal performance. Available in factory-loaded ammunition as well as component bullets for reloaders. CX bullets from Hornady. Yeah. And, you know, the ideal shot on the, on the running game is going to be in the head-neck area. Obviously, you're gonna, there's going to be times when you need to shoot a bore, let's say, on the in the shield that they have, which is obviously very thick. Very I mean, tough it, yeah, to get through. Tough. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, those are two schools of thoughts. Obviously, what Calais is saying in Europe, there's a big move uh, by the governments uh, within uh, the EU particularly uh, to move away from uh, traditional ammunition with, with uh, lead cores and things like that. Obviously, that's not our position, but that, that's a whole other story. Um, SSTs, you're going to get that fragmentation. You're going to get secondary wounding uh through some of these other projectiles that are going to come once the bullet starts to lose some of that weight. Mm -hmm. Whereas the CX, which is uh, now the, you know, yeah. as the GMX is morphed, you're going to get lots of deep penetration. You're going to get high weight retention. Um, but it does, it, you're going to get all that penetration. So it's not going to give up as much energy within the game. Franz prefers to hit them. I mean, he shoots extremely well. So where he's aiming or where he's going to uh, release the trigger, that's where he's going to impact that pig. And again, it's, it's in that, that head, neck, you know, area here to try to rapidly disable that pig. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, a bullet that gives up some weight and, and gets those secondary wounding fragments, that's very helpful. It is very helpful. You want that massive cavitation, you want dramatic expansion, and you want it in a hurry in a shot scenario like that. Uh, the CX bullet, as Calais had mentioned, you know, he'd shot the GMX for, you know, well over a decade, and now it has morphed to the CX. One thing that we've we've tried to do in designing the CX bullet is put some design features in there that help it impact with higher velocity. We're not necessarily changing the muzzle velocity of the ammunition. We're changing some drag dynamics on the bullet mm. to help it impact with a higher velocity because those monolithic bullets really thrive on impact velocity for their terminal performance. And the faster they're going upon impact, the more dramatic of an expansion you'll have and more of an instant, uh, that animal will will you'll be recognizable in in how he absorbs yeah, that sure. bullet with that higher impact speed. And then one thing I wanted to mention uh, for our uh, market here in the U.S. This really won't apply to them, but uh, for our European listeners, we've catered uh, to that market and to the style of hunting with specific bullet designs and actually specific lines of ammo that are sold only internationally right. just for this type of hunting. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the, the chamber designs are, are based on some of the really long uh, kind of round nose bullets that were popular back in the day. Well, you got to make bullets now with it. So we do the ECX for our European customers. And it is, you know, kind of based on that long round nose projectile to fit in those chambers to give them the, the performance that they need yeah, the um, out of those particular guns. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Awesome. Well, um, transitioning now from you know, talking conservation and a little bit of the TV show and, and talking some bullet uh, choices here. We, you guys wrapped up filming on the newest episode, or excuse me, the newest season of Wild Boar Fever. Let's talk a little bit about what this season is going to bring to the listeners and where they can go to find it. Franz, maybe you can lead us off on this. So Franz is, is from Germany, um, but he now resides in Spain. So this was kind of in his new home country, uh, which was, but it was, it was unique. And so, Franz, you filmed these episodes, or sorry, these 
these shows all over the world. Maybe you can touch on uh, some of the unique qualities uh, regarding Spain. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been very lucky to, to have been able to travel more or less all over Europe for these shows. So it's been Hungary, Romania, Germany, um, France, and so on. And then there was a question of, of where, where could we go next? And since Spain is such a, has such an avid history and, and traditional hunting background, uh, we thought that Spain would be the right right area to go to, and I'm I mean I'm the biggest fan of of Spain and its hunting heritage, uh, but also the food and the wines uh, don't necessarily hurt while you're hunting, um, and so the weather of course also while in Hungary and and, and Romania we've been in sort of heavy snow, uh, rainy low temperatures kind of generally that's the type of weather that you encounter. And in Spain, it's mostly the type of weather that you see in the background. And also the starting times in the morning. I mean, you meet for 10 o'clock breakfast and you sort of start the drive at around 12. And then a late lunch, followed by a wonderful dinner. Uh, it's just all completely different to anything that we've experienced before. Uh, also, the dogs they use, the way they drive the boar. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing how... Three countries, when I look at Germany, France, and, and Spain, for example, that border each other, how differently they have evolved in the way that they hunt for. And at the same time, it's all the same passion and it's the same species. But Spain was kind of missing, and I'm, I can't wait to see um, the result of, this, of, of these episodes because I think it's going to give the wild boar fever the round off that it needed. Uh, in terms of showing the different traditions in, 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 in wild boar shooting around Europe. And Franz, maybe you can uh, help uh, delineate the difference between a Monteria-style hunt versus a, you know, what, what I would consider a traditional European-driven hunt. Right, so I think the Monteria firstly uses completely different dogs. They're high-legged dogs. Uh, the race is called Podenko, and it's usually one drive per day, which lasts three to four hours, which is usually a large slab of land. could be in mountainous areas with very thick brush. So it takes a lot of, a lot of power uh, and pressure through the dogs to move these animals because they're going to try and sit within that thicket as long as possible. Then you're usually placed either on small rides or if you're lucky, you get to shoot into a different mountain uh, mountainside from one side over a valley into the other. And that doesn't necessarily have to be long distance shooting. Um, it can also, I mean, the, the, the mountainside in front of you could, could maybe be 80 meters or so. If I take the crass uh, opposite, it would be Poland, for example, where you do seven, eight drives a day. Start very early in the morning. Each drive maybe only takes 20 to 25 minutes. And you're in and out of cars all day moving, um, yeah, seven, eight drives a day. You might come to, to a great result as well, but it's just very different. It's, 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 it's like sun and moon. I mean, you, I, I don't know, to be honest, how Spain has evolved the way it did. And I also don't know how Poland has evolved the way it did. Both of them work, um, and I'm 
just happy to to be able to experience the different ways of doing it and and it's been amazing over the last 15 years to be able to to go to all these different places and pick up all new ideas and and sometimes um adjust our home shoot to some of the new things we found Simon you were uh, an executive producer on this uh, newest season. Tell us about how the production went and how you think the finished so, product turned out. Uh, it's the fifth show that I've been involved with, and we've done a couple in, couple in France, one in Croatia, one in Spain, and we did one um, which was, if you like, a um, best hits of, which was some of the footage that didn't make some of the shows plus some of the best scenes, which was, of course, none of us could travel during COVID. So we still put a show out during that period, but we kind of went back through the the archive and put a really cool best hits together, which was, which was really good, which Franz features in quite heavily. Um, the logistical piece behind this is always much bigger than anyone could imagine. I think we had a crew of say 20 people. Um, obviously there were three guys hunting and even running a hunt, a driven hunt for three people has its own challenges. Normally you'd be out with 10, 15, 20 people. But trying to run a hunt with three people and trying to move animals, unpredictably moving animals, to three static locations, then film it and make it look good um, is complicated. So um, firstly, <laughs> it's, it, it's, um, TV show magic. It, is, it is complicated to do. So you need to pick the right areas where you've got um, stands which can, if you like, have animals funneled to them. Um, you need to have very experienced cameramen and you need very accurate shooters. And that's why the three guys who are on this podcast with me um, were involved because you need animals to be hit cleanly. And um, of course, the last thing we would ever want to do would be to promote any level of unethical hunting on a show like Wild Bull Fever. So accurate shooting was a must. And there's been some exceptional shooting as there always is on these shows. Um, and I think people will see that there's six episodes and they they kick on on the outdoor channel um from the 3rd of september sunday the 3rd so um tune in i think it's the uh 5th of september it goes out on motv so outdoor channel gets the scoop and then it's on motv after but the drive is on as the marksmen of wild boar fever head to spade taking the driven hunt to a breathtaking new level. It's so exciting, it's difficult to grasp everything at the same time. But it's like action monster. Wild Boar Fever Spain, presented by Aimpoint, hunts the globe. Premieres September 5th on My Outdoor TV. Um, I'm very privileged to be involved in the show. It's been going for 25 years. Um, I think it's probably it's probably the highest budget production in Europe for any hunting content. And so it's a, it's a big deal having that many experienced hunters together, that many experienced film crew, trying to make sure it stays fresh and interesting for audiences year by year. It not being a shoot 'em up kill fest, because that's not what it's all about. Of course, a lot of animals do die, but there's, as we've talked about, there's a, a management and conservation sort of principle that underlies the whole thing. So it's making sure that those things are sort of focused on of course people partake in driven boar hunting because it's very enjoyable um but making sure that you know we present it in the right way to audiences and i think the the guys who put it out uh, produced the show um make it internationally really really interesting for people so the european diehards will love it but then people that have never experienced driven hunting before in a european style will watch it and learn a lot and find it really interesting so 
Um, it's a cool thing to be involved with. And uh, this show is not going to disappoint. I think Wobble Fever Spain, which is, which is the 12th iteration of it, is going to be a good one. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting collaboration. So the Outdoor Channel brings their best. Uh, Mike Baker's uh, the the on the scene ground guy that that produces the show. He's been doing outdoor programming for years. I mean, great guy. And then uh, it's a collab with uh, Paul Eric from uh, Denmark. He's worked with France uh, back when this was covered under the Hunters Video and, series. And he's the OG, by the way. He's the OG. He's the one that came up yeah, with the concept twenty five yeah. years ago. Yeah, Paul Eric and, and managed to convince Aimpoint that he needed support with it. And I'm sure it's been, and Callie, maybe you can talk a bit about the relationship for 25 years and, and, and how it popularized hunting with Aimpoints as a style of hunting, because I think it had a, it had a significant impact. No, for sure. I think you, can, you could very easily run a, a graph of, of when, when kind of, let's say, they really took off, like the first and the second was kind of just individual hunters who Polyeric made a deal with that they could come to the hunt and then they teamed up with Aimpoint from the first one. But then you can really see when it starts going up from the third episode of Funds Join. And I, I think you would just run that graph uh, along with our sales and see that they kind of went up uh, simultaneously. So uh, when the third and the fourth and those episodes aired, um, and that was even with, with the whole logistics of the guys had to go in the sh in the hunting shop and there was not a lot of somi that could push the content out of letting them know that there was now a new episode dvds uh, exactly they had to go in the hunting shop and buy the dvd and i mean it wasn't cheap it was like i think uh, i mean when when you when they came out you were paying uh, something like 40 50 euros for the dvd um and then you had to wait a whole year uh, with nothing to tease you and keep you motivated for the next one but still Somehow um, the content was was so magnificent. I mean, I remember uh, myself. We had I was studying at Copenhagen at that time, and I had a lot of German friends uh, from the countryside in Germany also. And we would do like uh, screenings, so premieres. So we were basically when the new one came out, buy the DVD, meet up twenty five guys in the Born flat, there. and then just get um, completely shit faced and watch uh, Franz do his magic, uh, and then have a big party, which was a lot of fun. And and. This awesome. is exactly, and you would sit and you would watch the movie in the in the lead up to the hunting season, uh, just to get motivated, and it could hype you for a whole season. Um, and and we can see, I mean, if you look at the sales numbers, like I think it was like thirteen and fourteen those years when when uh, when funds was really uh, in the in the in the third and the, the fourth and fifth, uh, the sales went crazy, especially in Germany, but also yeah, I mean, in I southern think, France, I think. Franz showed people what's possible with a red dot site yeah. uh, in a really pressured, challenging situation, identifying the right animal, shooting it humanely, and then shooting another one within a second in the same group that's been identified as another target animal. And there's, there's 15 animals there, and he's picking the right animal and shooting it accurately with a red dot site. I think there's no kind of better showcase. It's probably worth mentioning a little bit of a plug for MOTV. All of those original episodes are available on MOTV to subscribers. Um, so you can go back and look at all of the historic content that we're talking about here by subscribing to MOTV and going on there. Uh, and the new Wobble Fever Spain will be on there as well. So you've got a lot of content and there's a lot of extra bits and pieces on there as well, behind the scenes and, and so on. Um, the YouTube channel, there's quite a few kind of tasters, if you like, of it. So go and check it out. But I think there's, um, you know, you can see how Franz uses or all of the shooters use a red dot site and how effective it is 
um, how how the aim point works in those situations. And of course, the the show will be out beginning of September on uh, on Outdoor Channel. That's awesome. And Kelly, like you were talking about watching the video, getting pumped up for the upcoming you know hunting season. Uh, this conversation has kind of got me doing that. And uh, the weather. We have false fall going on yeah. outside right now. It's, so it's a little August cooler out. About 60 degrees for us, which yeah. is quite cold. It was 57 degrees Fahrenheit this morning when I woke up and talking about hunting today. And, you know, our archery season opens up in two weeks for, for deer uh, here in the U.S. It's it's getting me excited. And, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, Simon, with the show launching here that first week in September, uh, uh, tune in and, and start getting excited because it's, it's that time of year. We'll be watching uh, football games and uh, wild boar fever. Okay. <laughs> I do have uh, one more uh, point I want to bring up, or and it's uh, somewhat tangential, but I, I do want to bring it up because, uh, Neil, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that uh, Franz has been uh, a, an icon for hunting and conservation yeah. in all of Europe for a very long time. And for a lot of that time, he could shoot whatever bullet and whatever ammunition that he wanted to. And there's some very popular European brands. And recently uh, we've announced that he is officially a Hornady sponsored shooter. And uh, I would just like to talk about the significance of he could shoot what he wanted and he chose to shoot our products. And now we've got an official relationship there. Yeah. And he, and you know, I can let France talk about that, but he put, he put his trust in our company Mm -hmm. and our products, which is meaningful because like you said, he can choose from anything, <laughs> anything from all over the world. Trust me, yeah. And uh, it's very meaningful. So we're glad to have you as as part of our ambassador staff, France. Yeah, I mean, I'm honored to be on it. And like I said, it came very naturally because, um, I mean, Neil, we know each other for some time, but I know your products longer than you guys know me. And I've been very happy with your products, and not only with SST, but I also shoot the ELDX, and I've also shot some of the other um other projectiles depending on what type of hunting i'm doing and i've always been very fond um and there there was a very natural um how would you say it was it was just a natural way of coming closer and and now that we finally have something sorted out um professionally i i couldn't be happier and and what a lot of people don't know um front is known for the driven hunting stuff that that obviously he's done with wild boar fever and that but as far as european hunting i mean he's done everything that there is to do in europe and he hunts internationally as well so mm-hmm. he 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 epitomizes you know conservation through hunting that that's a big statement that everybody needs to understand and it's it's a message that we all need to carry forward of course we like to hunt but we we want to have that those game animals here tomorrow so we can also go hunting and we don't want to see them decimated we want to take the biological surplus off the top we want to help the ecology of the region um and and that's only done by uh hunting that's the best method that's out there uh by legal sport hunting yep and it's also the funnest yeah and it has uh, such a significant co- culture worldwide a, a brotherhood of men and women that that get together to do this and share it and i'm and the wild boar fever uh, episodes definitely showcase that i mean these are great guys we're, we're all in the industry we're all friends and it's just fun to to be with these uh, guys out there, and you know what we would call a hunting camp, but mm-hmm. it's quite a it's not quite a hunting camp like you and I might be used to. Right. It's in a it's in a beautiful estate in Spain with some fantastic scenery and and new cuisine, 
uh, and and a whole group of other Spanish hosts that that were fun to meet as well. So yeah, it was a pleasure to be with you two gents on this trip, and Simon and the rest of the production crew. It was a lot of fun. Power and performance in the palm of your hand. Hornady Handgun Hunter Ammunition. Built around the tough copper alloy monoflex handgun bullet that features a proprietary elastomer tip, deep penetration, and high weight retention. Handgun Hunter Ammunition. As rough and rugged as the conditions and game demand. Excellent, guys. I've got a question for each of you now uh, that's completely unrelated to... Uh, the TV show, but I ask every guest that's on this podcast, Neil's already cemented his answer. So I'll ask you guys individually. So I'm going to start with Simon. Kale and Franz, you can think about your answer. Uh, if you had to pick one cartridge and one Hornady bullet to use for the rest of your life, you could have unlimited ammo, you could have unlimited guns, but they all had to have the same cartridge and the same Hornady bullet. Simon, what would you choose? Oh, that's really difficult. <laughs> really difficult. Um, I'm going to go seven PRC uh, just because I was lucky enough to shoot the first elk. Although that is seemingly being disputed by a number of people, but I was lucky enough to shoot one of the first elk. I thought it was the first, but I think it has been disputed uh, with the seven PRC last year at the Deseret, and it was a really special experience for me. Um, I'd probably use my buddy George's rifle from GA Precision uh, in seven PRC and. Um, probably stick a nice Leica optic on the top of it. Beautiful. 175 VLDX Precision Hunter, I'm guessing. Boom. Yep. It's a good answer. Uh, so on our screen, uh, Franz, you're in the middle. So uh, what's your choice for cartridge and bullet for the rest of your life? That's a really tough one. I mean, you kind of need to go at least 9.5 millimeters to be able to hunt in Africa which I don't do all the time, but I don't want to like, if it's for the rest of my life, I do want to go back to Africa. So I need to have a 9.5 millimeter diameter. Um, so it will probably be somewhere around a 375 Holland and Holland. Although I do agree that for long distance shooting, um, that's probably not the ideal caliber, but to, to kind of encompass everything, it would have to be somewhere around a 375 H&H. And then I would probably go for something like the ELDX because I find that the most universal round in terms of um, penetration, um, but also immediate uh, reaction on game, accuracy. It probably have to be somewhere around that caliber and that round. Okay. Well, we might have to put a 375 ELDX in the, in the hopper. You might know, fit well in a 375 Ruger. Yeah, we got a CX, so mm -hmm. you could you could go with the CX. Yep. Or the DGX bonded, perhaps. Yeah. But see, France likes that immediate incapacitation. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Uh, a good answer, though, because like you said, it encompasses pretty much everything on the face of the earth. Uh, if you go that big, I was in Simon's camp. I was a seven PRC guy <laughs> as well. But all right, Kale. What can't you shoot with? Yeah, that? I mean, You're what perfect. are you going to do? If, like, let, let's say you've got a, a big mad buffalo in front of you. And you where are you going to tickle him with a C, uh, with a seven PRC? Tickle him. All right, Kale. One cartridge and one bullet. What do you think? Uh, yeah, but the thing now, fans suddenly took it in that you was you should be able to shoot everything. Um, I met an old gentleman who uh, said he was only using his 375 Holland Holland because 
we just change the bullets and shoot everything from a rodeo to a, a buffalo. Uh, I've never shot that uh, caliber on a hunt, um, but I I think you know. Then Franz says, "Yeah, but what are you going to tickle the buffalo with a, a seven PRC?" But I think I would just stick with my uh, thirty or six. Uh, I would buy the whole lot of GMXs that I could find around and uh, use yeah. what I know and what I've shot so many. Uh, I mean, I've shot uh, 600 kilo mooses at 240 meters with it, uh, one shot, and you could see exit wound, which doesn't happen a lot on the moose. Uh, but it was just, I mean, it was just pumping out on the other side while it turned around and ran 40 meters. Um, so, you know, I and, and of course, yes, in Africa, that's maybe not enough. But I mean, I've, I've heard um, but tales. Kelly, there's a way around that. Yes. We could be invited by Franz and use his rifle and his bullets. We can <laughs> exactly. use his three yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a workaround. We can have yeah. a good rifle for goats, sheep, and, and European medium game species, and we can borrow Franz's 375 when he invites yeah. us. There we go. I didn't specify that in the rules, You've got to have a team. you got to have yeah. a little exactly. tribe. That's right. Uh, yeah. I think I would stick with that one. Awesome. Well, luckily, yeah. I was 30-odd six as well. Yeah. Calais, so nice deal. We're on the same sheet of music. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of discounted the – the the rules about shooting buffalo with a 375 minimum so i, I kind of discounted that you but, can be franz's yeah. guest as well yeah I, yeah don't forget, have to be. don't don't forget to read the small print yeah that's right yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he's in marketing he gets to type the small print yeah that's right yeah. never let the truth get in the way of a good story simon as you once <laughs> said right on this very podcast <laughs> well luckily guys this is absolutely hypothetical and hornady makes everything from 17 hmr to gosh the big uh, yeah, 470s and 50 BMG. Yeah. So we've got something for everybody. Uh, and I appreciate you guys uh, coming on our podcast and, and talking, you know, the conservation thing and talking the TV show thing and, and getting us excited for that upcoming season of Wild Boar Fever. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. You're very welcome, Thanks, Neil. Thanks, gentlemen. Anything else to leave the listener with? No. Uh, September 3rd. September Tune in. 3rd. Uh, on Outdoor Channel here in the States, and then MOTV is just a few days later. But uh, you're going to get to see some fantastic shooting done by Calais and France for sure. I, I heard it all. I didn't get to see it because I was somewhere else, but you're going to get to see a lot of action, I think. So it, it'll be a fun show. And I think awesome. You guys are going to be showcasing a few of the trailers on your social media feeds, I believe. Yeah, that's Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, we appreciate it. Everyone out there listening, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast about wild boar fever and some of the behind the scenes on filming the most recent uh, season that releases here in just a few weeks. It's a great show with a great conservation effort. We think you'll enjoy it, and we'll catch you on the next one.